Perfect. Good, mor good morning. Morning. Thank you, Dr. Boyle. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds on, I guess, a snowy uh, January 9th, 18th, 2017. Um, and if, so some of you are not busy here because you're still dealing with school delays or cancellations. We are, we are also kicking off with this Grand Rounds our, our winter, spring. Chad Child Neurology Mini Fellowship Series. So I see our colleagues in Nashua, Concord, and Manchester on the screen, although I think they have more reason to perhaps have cancellations and delays than we do down south. But uh, just as a reminder, this the Mini Fellowship Series is a, a way to um, uh, bring us all up to speed and up to a, maybe a consistent place on current diagnostic uh, approaches and management considerations for maybe more common and important conditions that our specialists see and our primary care docs manage and perhaps improve the coordination of that care and the management of that care by, by catching us up. So um, we will see neurology for the next coming months. I, I always get a chance or enjoy the chance to share um, kudos and feedback, and I, I get so many. I get shared so many of these uh, family patient messages that this one's already a year old from a patient who was recovering post-operatively from scoliosis surgery. And in the PICU, the family shared that they have worked for many years for the public and know how challenging it can be to work with the public, especially under circumstances of hospitalization. But uh, the folks in the PICU, particularly Charlie McGrave and Katie Terrian, were awesome in every way. She wanted to take the time to pass along positive feedback because I think these days we don't hear the good stuff very often. We hear the negative more often than not. So before we left, I wanted to let you know how pleased we were with these folks and all of the folks in the PICU and their care for my son and for us and myself as a parent for that matter. So. Some of us just came from a session with Ed Marins uh, that revealed or shared some of the results of the physician burnout survey that some of our medical staff signed and certainly acknowledged that there's data to show that there's significant concerns about burnout for our non-physician caregivers as well. And um, this is only a little tiny piece. But I agreed with this particular year-old message that we sometimes hear too much negative and not enough positive. So uh, keep trying to remember that as we go about our days. Today's Grand Rounds, as I said, the Chad Mini Fellowship Series in Neurology will start with Dr. Raymond Ferry in his first appearance on, at this podium. Dr. Ferry is a native of Providence, Rhode Island, uh, where he completed his pediatric and neurology training at Rhode Island Hospital um, and uh, Hasbro Children's Hospital after undergraduate degrees in Cleveland at Case Western Reserve University and Medical School and a PhD, MD-PhD at the Medical College of Pennsylvania. He um, was also a fellow in developmental metabolic neurology at NIH in Bethesda before taking his first faculty position where he was until he joined us in 2015 at Seattle Children's Hospital and the University of Washington. Um, Dr. Furry spent time as a, a program and education director in pediatric neurology there as well and is going to teach us today on an area of particular interest of his um, uh, movement disorders and muscular dystrophy. So. Welcome, Ray. Um, well, it actually, everyone's heard of efficiency, but it must be efficiency that really is good at this work. And before I start, I remember nothing to be exposed. Many of the children's hospitals, including ours, had a bunch of there are actually more than 40 diseases covered in the and these diseases are not restricted to the story of the muscle. They move from the spinal cord out to the muscle, spinal muscular atrophy, which is a disease of the motor neurons in the spinal cord, with nerve diseases such as problems with tooth, either the neuromuscular structure, such as my rabbit, as well as the muscle. And in the muscle, we can think of the or the muscular dystrophy, the muscular dystrophy, the muscular dystrophy, the 
that results from defects in genes required for normal muscle function. I'm going to spend most of my time talking about and how to do Excuse me, can we make, make sure that the doctor's mic is turned on? We don't seem to be hearing the doctor very well. Your microphone isn't on and they can't hear you. Ah, I, is that too loud? I can turn the line down a little bit. I think it's just echoing. Should I move? Try that. That's probably better. Okay. Um, these kids all they tend to present somewhat similarly. Um, they may have hypotonia, but they usually present with muscle weakness, and they're not going to come in the saying they're weak. It's more based on changes in motor function. Particularly gait uh, abnormalities in the majority of these kids. Um, they may also have developmental delay because these usually have some degree of cognitive involvement. Um, but the age of onset can be very variable. And most of these, there are exceptions, most of these are not symptomatic during infancy. Actually, this is a not symptomatic during infancy. The congenital muscular dystrophies and, uh, have uh, infantile onset. And one subtype of uh, myotonic dystrophy can present in infancy. In, in infancy. So the diagnostic evaluation, really the most important features are the history, including family history, because these are all genetic disorders. Um, the patterns of inheritance uh, can be different, but there's often a family history. The exception being the ones that are autosomal dominant, many of those may start to be a new mutation in that patient. Um, the other thing that's really important is the physical exam and the pattern of weakness because all these disorders tend to have somewhat of a unique pattern in their in their uh, in the muscles that are affected. There really isn't much in the way of labs. We usually send a creatine kinase, and that tends to be elevated in all of them. Um, but some uh, Duchenne's will have the highest degree of elevation. You'll see. Uh, CK levels of 20 to 30,000. Others are, tend to be mild, anywhere from just uh, twice normal to maybe uh, five times normal. EMG and nerve conduction studies used to be done in the past. We tend not to do those anymore because um, we now tend to uh, go right to the genetic testing, particularly um, when you get a, you can have a clue from the uh, history and physical exam, you can target your genetic testing. Muscle biopsies are done once in a while, when the particularly when the genetic testing is negative. But the muscle biopsies used to also be a frequent method of diagnosis. So to look at the different patterns, and actually it might be easier if I use this. Um, the Duchenne's tends to have more proximal muscle involvement. So in the shoulders, upper arms, and the proximal lower extremities. So we're going to present more with the proximal in the upper extremities and distal in the lower extremities. The limb girdle, the, it can begin with either primarily shoulder and upper arms, uh, hips and upper lower extremities, or with both being affected onset at the same time. The fasciocapular humeral is, as the name implies, the face and the shoulder. Pringle is also proximal, but. It's 
So this is the site of, of the problems. This is the uh, muscle cell membrane. And if you think of the muscle as a contractile tissue, you have the actin on the inside as the that's the contractile element. Connected to that is the dystrophin. And the dystrophin links to these other proteins, some just below the uh, cell membrane, some way in the membrane. And it really helps stabilize that complex. And you've got this linkage system that extends, that essentially links um, the muscle cell to the extracellular matrix to allow for. Um, for optimal contraction. And I'm going to start with the dystrophin abnormalities, one, because they're the most common, um, and two, because that's the one for which there is some treatment. Um, so the dystrophin, the dystrophinopathies, Duchenne's muscular dystrophy and Becker's muscular dystrophy um, are the two main, most common phenotypes. There's also an intermediate. Sometimes they refer to them as a mild Duchenne's and, or a, um, early Becker's. And there is actually also a dystrophin-associated dilated cardiomyopathy without uh, skeletal muscle weakness. The dystrophin, oops, sorry. The dystrophin gene itself is on the X chromosome, and it's the largest gene that's been identified. Um, it's on the cytoplasmic side of the muscle cell membrane, and it's part of a large glycoprotein complex. It provides mechanical reinforcement to the, to the muscle cell membrane, and it helps prevent degradation of all those uh, proteins. And actually, I'm going to go back to that picture for one second. Um, a number of these in here have been associated with some of the um, muscular dystrophies that, uh, that I'll talk about. But there are large, uh, many other proteins that are not necessarily part of that complex that will also give you the, some of these muscular dystrophy phenotypes. So the clinical features of Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, most commonly, this will present around age two to three. And these kids start, early normal, development is normal, maybe some mild, if there's cognitive involvement, just a mild developmental delay, more related to cognitive issues. Um, but at two and three, age two to three, parents start notice they're falling more, they're having uh, difficulty maneuvering on stairs. Uh, and they also tend to develop a prominent lumbar lordosis. They have a widening gait, and what you, you may see in the clinic, what you should see in the clinic if you examine them is you have them rise from the floor, and they do a, a there's a gala sign where as they rise from the floor, they actually use their arms to march up their proximal distal extremities to get to a full standing position. They also end up having these very large casts, and it's not muscle hypertrophy. Some of the muscle, as it degenerates, you get more fibrosis and uh, fat deposition in the muscle itself. Now, the wheelchair by age 12, actually, usually with Duchenne's there, these amputation by, more typically by age 8. Other features that are, more, that are very uh, prominent in these kids is uh, the cardiac symptoms. They develop a, car, a dilated uh, cardiomyopathy, that, which often begins sort of on the left side of the heart, and it then tends to spread. These, about half the kids become symptomatic by age 18. And the reason why they don't get symptomatic earlier is because they're no longer ambulatory, so they're not putting as much stress on the heart. I'm going to interrupt you for just a minute. There, can I see your microphone, the body back? I get a complaint that it's not sounding good. I can only do what they ask. Um, <laughs> and then there are also some uh, characteristic EKG findings. The other issues that are really important are the orthopedic and actually in the pulmonary. So these kids often develop scoliosis from their muscle weakness, from being in the wheelchair, and because of the scoliosis and the muscle weakness, they also develop significant pulmonary uh, 
symptoms, and they often require, and they usually require assisted, assisted devices for uh, pulmonary function. And in addition to the scoliosis, they have contractures, they uh, have a decrease in their bone density, so they're at risk for f fractures. Um, and there are varying degrees of cognitive impairment as well. Some of the kids, there are some kids with normal intelligence. Many of them will have mild um, uh, cognitive disabilities, but, some, but at times it could also be uh, very profound. They also have very slow growth uh, in general. The um, Becker's is a milder phenotype. It has a later onset and slower decline. And these kids are usually, these people are usually ambulatory at age 15, and some of them don't lose ambulation until they're adults. Um, they have less cognitive disability, fewer contractions, similar cardiac involvement, and they may actually uh, start showing cardiac symptoms earlier because they're still ambulatory and moving, so they may put a little more stress on the heart. So pathologically, what you see is this is normal muscle, and this is the, the Duchenne's staining. And it's, you see the staining all along the, uh, the surface of the muscle fibers. In Duchenne's, there's no, you don't see any, active, any uh, protein at all. Compared to Becker's, where this is normal, you see lighter staining. So there is some protein in Becker's, and I'll get into why that is. Right now, the, well, up until recently, the standard treatment, and for most kids this is still, this, this hasn't changed, is glucocorticoids for motor function, and we tend to use prednisone or prednisolone here. In Canada and other countries, they use the flazacort. Uh, that's not available here. Um, but the, pri the primary treatment is going to be symptomatic. Physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy to maintain ambulation, maintain function as long as possible. Orthopedic for, to address the contractures and scoliosis. The, uh, the pulmonary treatment in the car and, uh, uh, cardi and cardiology. The glucocorticoids uh, help maintain ambulation. In this study, they looked at kids treated in the black line and the red line, no treatment. The percentage that remained ambulatory, and this is their age. And with glucocorticoids, they remain ambulatory for a longer period of time. The bottom curve just compares the flazacord in green to the um, daily prednisone, and the red and yellow are alternative um, uh, prednisone schedules uh, to try to minimize side effects. The primary benefit of the glucocorticoids is to prolong ambulation. Uh, there, is, uh, there are some studies out there indicating it may help slow the cardiac involvement. It may help some with pulmonary function. It may uh, slow the scoliosis. Um, but the side effects are a major concern particularly on, uh, on bone health, uh, increases the risk for fractures. And because of the effect on bone, it actually can impact the scoliosis. Also, the weight gain is really important for, the, uh, for these kids, because that can then counteract your goals of maintaining ambulation, and they may develop cataracts. The treatment schedule, the, the standard treatment um, is uh, 0.75 milligrams per kilogram per day of the prednisone. And the problem with that has been the development of the side effects. So there are alternate uh, treatments such as given higher doses only two days a week. And there isn't that much of a difference between the two. So I tend to prefer using uh, the high dose two days a week versus two days a week versus daily. So the flazacord has uh, a different schedule. It's, it's a little better side effect profile, but it's actually yeah, you do have the same array of, of side effects. Treatment starts when motor skills and ambulation plateau. So this actually you rely a lot on 
the parents' observations and the physical therapist to identify when this when the kids seem to sort of reach a plateau in the ambulation and motor skills. Then you start the uh, the steroid, and then the the hard part is how long do you treat and when do you stop. Um, some people will stop when you when ambulation is is eventually lost. Others because of potential benefit on cardiac and uh, uh, pulmonary systems, they may keep it a little longer. Really, a lot depends on the side effects. If they're having a lot of side effects on the medication that are interfering with uh, that that are counteracting. Um, uh, or creating more more problems, then you stop. So there's not a clear. There's a, it's pretty clear when to start it. It's not clear when to end it. So there's a lot of research in the in the dystrophinopathies using other immunomodulators, trying to use other muscle proteins to compensate for the um, for the. Uh, absent dystrophin, other proteins that may help improve muscle regeneration. Gene transfer, there was a lot of interest in that, and there probably still is, but from year, from, that was sort of the a very exciting area quite a while ago. The problem with it, it's such a large gene, it's hard to get a vector that can incorporate that whole gene and get it into muscle. It's hard to target the muscle, and it often generates an immunological response. So recently, there's been a new medication that's been approved by the FDA with the goal, to, the goal is to create a more functional protein. So if you go back to the two different phenotypes, the goal is to take a Duchenne's phenotype and make it a milder uh, Becker's. So for Duchenne's, well, it's such a big gene, there can be mutations all along the gene. Mutations that disrupt the reading frame, so it leads to an early stop of, um, of uh, transla translation. Um, these will give you a very short truncated protein that then tends to be rapidly degrading, degraded so that there's no... Um, so essentially, you have no, so you have no dystrophin. That gives you a more severe phenotype. With Becker's, you have some, you have normal, um, an abnormal protein, but it has much of the length. Both the carboxy and amino terminals are still present, and it does have some function. So the idea is to try to take the um, Duchenne's and convert it to uh, Becker's. So the majority of the large deletions in, in uh, Becker's and Duchenne's, they tend to center around two hot spots, exons 45 to 53 and 2 to 20. So there's what's been developed is a technique called exon skipping. There are 79 exons in the gene, um, in, in, the, for the, in the dystrophin gene. Deletions of one or more exon tends to be responsible for uh, about two-thirds of the cases of Duchenne's and Becker's. Then there are the other uh, mutations are single nucleotide variants, um, and duplications tend to be a, a smaller no, uh, number. The reading frame rule is that pathogenic vari variants that do not alter the reading frame usually cre uh, create a milder Becker's phenotype. And those that alter the reading frame give you the more severe. So if you look at this, this is exons 48 to 52. So these rectangular ones that are side by side, these exons, um, they'll code for uh, an amino acid, the three nucleotides coding for that, nuclear, for that amino acid uh, are all on this side. And then the new, the next amino acid starts here. If you look at these with this more puzzle piece type of shape, one or two nucleosides will be on this side. Uh, um, on one side of the exon, and the other one or two would be on this side. So a mutation if that disrupts this 
will just kind of push it together, but you don't lose the reading frame. So, so if you if you take this out, um, you have let's say you have one nucleotide for the amino for an amino acid here, the other two here. You totally change the amino acid sequence, which then gives you a truncated protein that's degraded. Um, what exon skipping will do is, if this is, if this is where your deletion is, you take out this too. So you have these two exons are no longer in the final protein, but you keep the reading frame, the remainder of the protein gets translated, and you have a shorter but functional protein to create a milder phenotype. I hope that makes sense. Um, so this atetrosin is an antisense oligonucleotide that binds to the pre-mRNA pre at exon 51 to alter the final protein transcript. And that's been approved by the FDA for treatment of muscular dystrophy. Uh, but the caveat is it has to be amenable to, it's, it's kids with deletions that are amenable to um, exon skipping at specifically exon 51. Um, in the study that the studies that they did for this, they looked at kids who were between the ages of seven and thirteen, and the clinical test they used was a six-minute walking test, and they needed to be able to walk between two hundred and four hundred meters uh, within six minutes. And the study, the clinical study, was actually small. They only had 12 patients total. Four of them got 30 um, milligrams per kilogram per week. Four got 50, and four in placebo. And then he did muscle biopsies at different times. He did it at baseline in all of them, at 12 weeks in the placebo, and the higher dose at 24 weeks in the lower dose in placebo, and then at 48 weeks in all of them. And in the placebo group, after 24 months, they were switched over to the medication two of them getting the lower dose, two of them getting the higher dose. And what they found is that um, histologically, oops, the, um, they saw more dystrophin staining. So in the lower dose, this is the dystrophin train, dystrophin staining at 48 weeks of treatment compared to 24 weeks of treatment. It seemed like it took a while for this to kick in, um, whereas a lot of the uh, improve, the uh, the early biopsies did not, did not show much. It seemed to uh, improve over time. In the higher dose, they did the biopsies at 12 weeks and there wasn't much dystrophin staining but you saw a lot more at 48 weeks and this is no treatment and this is after 24 weeks on the medication so they've come 24 weeks off medication 24 weeks on medication and that's this the dystrophin uh, staining this is the pre-treatment in, in the actual muscle biopsies of some of the patients so you don't see any dystrophin. And this, 24 weeks and 48, 48 weeks in the lower dose, 12 weeks and 48 weeks in the higher dose. So you see the accumulation of, of dystrophin in the muscle. And this is the placebo and at 24 weeks. Um, so I said the main thing this showed was that it did induce dystrophin uh, 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 in uh, children with the Duchenne's phenotype. Now, this was looking at some of the other proteins is that, you, that are found at the muscle membrane. So this is uh, Duchenne's patient untreated. This, and they're looking at uh, neuronal nitric oxide synthase. This is... Uh, Duchenne's, this is normal. And neuronal nitric oxide synthase, which is also at the muscle membrane, that was, they had staining for that. This is the beta and gamma-sycoglycans. Those are also staining, and typically those would be absent in kids with uh, Duchenne's. From a functional standpoint, uh, they did the 
the six-minute uh, walking test and look at the change from baseline. There was a 67-meter change. Um, the, uh, the purple is those that were treated. And they lumped all the treated together. And I should say, there were two patients in, in the treated that they were in the higher dose that they actually excluded from analysis because they stopped walking. And their rationale was that it was um, <laughs> that, that um, they were older and taller and were probably closer to losing ambul ambulation. Um, but they, the, the bottom line is they able to maintain, maintain uh, walking distance over a, long, a longer period of time. And they went back and looked at historical controls as well. So if you look at, um, this is actually breaks it down to individual cases. These are the ones that are treated versus the broken lines down here, historical controls. Um, so these weren't done at the same time. Instead, to show that there's an improvement in the walking test. And I should say there was a lot of um, parental pressure uh, to have a medication approved for uh, Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. And it did get, this medication got accelerated approval, but based pro primarily on the motor staining, not on the clinical tests. Um, the, uh, in, what they, the FDA said was that the data submitted um, demonstrated an increase in dystrophin production that is reasonably likely to predict clinical benefit in some patients, uh, the ones who have the appropriate mutation. But, um, they, 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 they took into consideration that this was a life-limiting disorder for which there is no treatment, um, and, and that, is, that, it was well, that it was safe, there wasn't, that it was well-tolerated as well. So we have a treatment now for children with muscular dystrophy, but it's specifically for those with, uh, that are amenable to uh, exon skipping at exon 51. That's only 13% of the kids with Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. And if you look at this chart, another 8% exon would benefit from exon 53, exon 45. So the vast majority of the kids with this disorder would not qualify for this medication. Um, they are, they are looking at exon skipping and some of these other exons as well. So for now, um, a lot of these kids, we actually have to go back and do the genetic testing because they were diagnosed with, but don't have the specifics of their, uh, of their mutation. So I'm going to now go from... Rick, can I just ask, how does the dystrophin molecule get into the motor position the muscle that's already been assembled and graded. It's muscle constantly going uh, being absorbed and reformed. It's that, so it's essentially the um the so the protein itself. So this is essentially working at the level of the mRNA to bind there. So you have to get this um, oligonucleotide into the cell to then get the cell to make this, to translate this somewhat yeah. functional protein. That, that part I follow, but the muscle's already been formed. Mm -hmm. Now you're going to secrete, or the dystrophin has got to get into that complex in the right position. That's what surprised me. That's what you said, Sam. The muscle is constantly breaking down, no. just like bone, it's not a static tissue. That's how, that's how we must like hyperbole for But that may be why you're not going to do optimal fibros in response to training. Which may be why you're not getting a great clinical benefit early. Well, and, and because you've got the stroke in there, but it's not been well, and also the other issue too is these, the age of these kids, and this was seven to thirteen. Um, and you, the um, for Duchenne's, they're often, they're usually not ambulatory by age eight, so they're getting these are kids who who. But what's the age of what age do you do the treatment? Um, do you, if you start them earlier, they may you, know, you may get a more robust response. Um, there, there's a lot of controversy actually about this. About this, and did, did it, does it really is it really a benefit? And um, in some ways, it was approved based on the histologic 
from an immune standpoint? Is your body going to reject it because it recognizes that not self? It hasn't yet, but the, the numbers are small. The numbers in the study. What's the mechanism of delivery of, of the agent? Is it an intravenous infusion? Is it? Yes. Yeah, it's infused. The. Um, if anyone wants to know, it's three hundred thousand dollars a year. Um, the um, the uh, so I'm going to move from that on to just you know just uh, go over. I don't know how much time is left. Some of the other one, the other ones, uh, the other muscular dystrophies, in in order of uh, of uh, of their prevalence. Um, myotonic dystrophy is. Probably is the second most common muscular dystrophy, and there are four different. There, there are three different phenotypes. Actually, so therefore, there's DM1, uh, myotonic dystrophy type one, and type two. But type one has three different phenotypes. Type two tends to be an adult onset, so I won't get into different gene. I won't talk about that. So, myotonic dystrophy. One of the characteristics of that is the myotonia, which is a slow. Um, relaxation of muscle. Uh, you get a muscle contraction and then a very slow, gradual relaxation. You can sometimes notice that when you, if you shake their hand, they have a hard time letting go. Um, we'll often just take the reflex hammer, tap the muscle right below the thumb, and it contracts and they have a slow relaxation. The, feet, the one that may show up early and in the nursery is the congenital form of, uh, of type 1. And these kids are often born with profound hypotonia. And the facial weakness is, is, um, is a major feature. So that facial diplegia, they often have atherogryposis and poor feeding. And they have really significant respiratory difficulty and often re and usually require mechanical ventilation. And mortality is high, particularly from the uh, respiratory symptoms. Uh, with good medical care, good support, they can they, those that survive this early period um, they do have some improvement over time. They're never, never normal, but they do have an improvement in their, uh, in their strength. They often have significant cognitive impairment, too. These kids tend to be um, uh, kids whose, whose mothers are typically affected with the disorder. And actually, did I? I, I was, there. The, the, then there's the childhood, which is in the classic, which are more common, which um, the, the childhood tends to begin before age 10. And they often have behavioral symptoms and learning difficulty that presents prior to any, any weakness. Um, they often have a lot of, uh, will develop cardiac, cardiac arrhythmias as well, but the weakness is usually not the early presentation. Um, the classic one is much later, many times not diagnosed until they're adults, and they have a lot of skeletal and respiratory muscle weakness, and, they all, and all of these um, will have, you will often develop cataracts, have the cardiac involvement, and the classic often has a lot of daytime uh, somnolence. The, I should go back to the infantile on, the um, the infantile onset. Generally, the, with that one, the myotonia does not present during infancy. It tends to pre present uh, later. So you may not. So it's, you may check for it on your examination, but you're not going to pick it up. The pattern of weakness for the myotonic dystrophies is the facial muscles are very significantly involved, as well as the neck. Um, in the extremities, it tends to be more distal. So you tend to see more in the hands and forearms as well as the, at, at the ankle. They tend to have these sort of these long, narrow faces and high arched palate, kind of sunken cheeks. And often their mouth has kind of like this inverted V type um, ex, uh, appearance to it. It's an autosomal dominant disorder that's. Um, the mutation is a trinucleotide repeat, um, a CTG repeat in a gene called the DMPK gene, more than a 1,000 repeats tends to give you the infantile form. 
800 to 1,000, the childhood form, and the classic one is less than 800. That, that's more of a guideline than a hard and fast rule, because there is some, there is little variability in that. They seem to have more, good number of repeats passed from the mother to the child and then from the father to the child. So typically, the infantile onset, the mother is the one who's affected. Um, the gene does get transcribed into RNA, but with these uh, abundant repeats, it does not get translated into protein. And treatment for this is just based strictly on symptoms. There, in fact, for the rest of these, there are no specific medical treatments. FSH muscular dystrophy is an autosomal dominant one with muscle weakness that particularly involves the face, scapula, proximal arms, disco, distal legs, and abdominal muscles. Um, and, and then this can look a lot like the later onset sp uh, spinal muscular atrophy. And these kids may complain of this actually tends to happen at later onset, usually, usually teens, but there's a lot of variability in, in these. Um, they can start in early childhood, and some of the things that they may complain about are, particularly with weakness up here, they have a hard time brushing their hair or washing their hair, things that uh, they do. Any, any, any task in which they need to raise their arms above their head. It, this tends to be very, a very slow progression, but they, these children have either normal or near-normal lifespans, um, and they tend to also have preserved uh, pulmonary function. You see a picture of this sort of the prominent, uh, essentially the muscle atrophy in the prominent scapula, and if you ask, ask them to extend their arm out and push against the wall, you get winging of the scapula. And this kind of, you see the patterns of weakness, the muscles, particularly around the shoulder, the, um, in the proximal arms, the face as well around the mouth and eyes, and the uh, uh, distal lower extremities. The, these people also have retinal vascular disease, but it doesn't impair vision. They usually, they often develop cardiac arrhythmias, and they also have a progressive hearing loss as well. Many of them will complain of chronic, chronic pain, and the pain seems to go along with the areas in which there is also weakness. It gets a little more complicated when you talk about the Emory Dreyfus and even Lingerl, only because in many ways these seem more like syndromes. Um, there are, they're described by the patterns of weakness, but the number of genes involved can be fairly large. Emory Dreyfus is an X-linked or autosomal dominant. Autosomal dominant is actually the most common, and an X-linked is second most common. And these are some of the proteins that are involved that, that in which there are mutations. These kids often have early contractures, and uh, for them, the muscles involved tend to be the, humor, the, the humerus and the peroneal muscles, and, that, and they also have arrhythmias and cardiomyopathy. So you're gonna see the, more where the, around the shoulder and the humerus and then the peroneal muscles down here. And then the limb girdles uh, is, can be autosomal dominant or recessive. And these are some of the genes. They're actually limb girdle muscular dystrophy type 1, A through H, and type 2, A through W. There are actually a large number of genes for this. Uh, it's, um, this is just an example. But many of these, dysferlin, sarcoglycans, the dystroglycans, are either in the muscle membrane uh, or like the lamin AC involved in the, from the muscle member, connecting the muscle membrane to the extracellular matrix. And these kids will have progressive muscle weakness and atrophy and variable age of onset, but in the childhood onset, that you're more likely to see, not exclusively, we're more likely to see uh, um, the pelvic girdle uh, affected first. Uh, the adults tend to have, some uh, people will have the shoulder affected prim uh, prior to the pelvic. Adults tend to have sort of simultaneous on onset of both. So you tend to see it's, this is what they refer to as the 
the girdle up here. So, in summary, the, the dystrophinopathies are the most common ones we'll see. The primary treatment is rehabilitation, symptomatic care, and glucocorticoids, but the diagnosis is based on, is, a, is a, now become a genetic diagnosis, and that's actually will be used to determine the course of treatment. If possible, the, there is a new medication, um, but in some ways it's actually still being studied to, um, for clinical efficacy. The other muscular dystrophies, myotonic, FSH, and redryphus, and then girdle, the phenotypes are much more variable. They can occur at any age from childhood, teenage years, and adulthood. And uh, the number of genes involved, um, there's only one here, one here. These have multiple genes involved. Um, but genetic testing is more easily available, so it's important to then map the, um, the pattern of weakness. And based on that, you can actually target which uh, genes that you want to assess based on the phenotype. Um, but treatment, in the end, for those is still symptomatic. Any, any questions? It did make it look like it was a little more effective. And but that's significant? And why? Like you know, compared to placebo, it's probably not that much different. Mm -hmm. Uh, thanks a lot, Ray. That was uh, really informative. Can you um, share with us, especially for my colleagues in the South, you said we have a muscular dystrophy clinic here. How often do these kids get seen by you? Kind of, uh, is it like every three months, every six months? And um, do you guys have services in the South as well, or is it just on the Lebanon campus? Just on the Lebanon campus. And depending on what, what they have, it's... And from three to six, some of them yearly. It all depends because it all depends on what the diagnosis is um, and how they're being treated. I should say spinal muscular atrophy. There's now something that's been approved for that. Um, it's it was approved, but it's not yet available. That's still a few months away. So that's another one in which there there's now a treatment. And I assume this is an interdisciplinary clinic that uh, yep. addresses yeah. your the pulmonary and physical therapy. Generally, especially now that no, but, I mean, whereas Ronford was always 18 to 21, you transitioned to the adult. There actually is now an adult MDA clinic as well. There hadn't been, but there is one. Uh, Victoria Lawson's running it, so that there is a there is a place for them to go. How to explain the foundation um, uh, issue in transitions? Is there a dystrophin in the neurons as well? Or Actually, there is. But there, there is a strophin in the neurons. So. Is that pharmacology of the exon 51 to those other exons is, is 
is it reasonably easy to take that paradigm and create uh, uh, drive the work on the other. Excellent skipping. They are, they're active, they're active, they're active, uh, um, they're actually making the, uh, the to do the other exons as well. I'm not sure if any of them have reached clinical trial yet. How do you do corticoids work? What's the mechanism of action? Is something disease modifying? That I don't know. I mean, you get an inflammatory response in the muscle. So are you limiting the inflammatory response to preserve function? So that's the hand waving. <laughs> you mentioned that ADHD may be one of the presenting symptoms with some of these districts. Mm -hmm and they don't have weakness. <laughs> I mean, we see a lot of kids with uh, ADHD. How do you... I mean, you know, adrenal leukodystrophy also, I mean, that's, oftentimes those kids will present with more of the behavioral change first, and it's, are there any other, other clues? Um, the, uh, it's... Up front, you, you may not notice any of the, the genetics, the family history, that part may, may give you the clue. Because um, it is a trinucleotide repeat, it should be one of the parents already affected. Uh, when I saw that, I thought about my lack of family history about this topic for those kids that I want to do. But my guess, though, if it was in the family, they would let you know. Uh, oh, okay, okay. No, <laughs> they don't know, and oh, the dad, I don't know. Well, you know Good point, I'm yeah. Good point. So, um, so I'll put in a pitch before we uh, um, disperse at the Mount Washington Dartmouth Pediatric Conference, the 27th annual, <coughs> into February. We will have a focus on child neurology as well, um, although you'll see many of the same topics in the coming months. Tim, do we have the next one teed up yet, or it's going to be in a month from now on our next in the new fellowship series in child neurology? Um, it's likely to be me. Okay. But it, it depends because some of the later speakers are uncertain and, and they need to switch. And um, so we'll see those for the next few months. And I, I would, without the risk of putting uh, Dr. Wallach on the spot, if there's a particular, I think we'll probably hit headache for sure, we'll probably hit epilepsy. But if there's a key topic you want to get in from a primary care perspective, get, get your feedback to Jan so you can incorporate it in the in his faculty for the next two uh, months. But uh, otherwise, enjoy the rest of the day and uh, make a good one. Thanks, right? <laughs> Very interesting.